0: Welcome to Spring Meadows Sunday School. And I'm going to start with number one on your handout. This is the final installment in our study of classical Christian theism regarding the attributes of God. And the object of our study has been of God Himself in the unsurpassable perfection of His interbeing, ad intra. Ad intra. I really want you all to learn that stuff, inner being, and his work as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in his outer operations add extra in regard to creation. And today, we're going to look at the doctrine of the Trinity, and some of today's lesson appeared in previous discussions, previous lessons, and some of it is new, but I just wanted to have a Trinity lesson that stood by itself, so My presentation assumes you've heard all previous lessons. That being said, let's go ahead and open with prayer. Our Father and our God, none of us has the ability to plumb the depths of your self-revelation to us. So we ask that you would stoop to the weakness of our thinking and assist us by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, what is classical Christian theism? Well, that's what we as Presbyterians believe, but it's it's the doctrine of God marked by a, and this is number two in your handout, it's the doctrine of God marked by a strong commitment to the doctrines of divine aseity, immutability, impassibility, simplicity, eternity, and the unity of the divine persons. And the underlying concept is that god because of his perfection you know when all these attributes we're looking at these things as perfections okay they does not derive any aspect of his being outside of himself and is not in any way caused to be and the source of the foundational ideas for classic christian theism comes from what a lot of people call the 18 Starting with Athanasius, uh, he lived from 296 to 373 AD. He was the hero of, of the Nicene Creed. Uh, next is Augustine, who lived from 354 to 430 AD. Uh, Anselm, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury. He lived from 1033 to 1109 AD. And Thomas Aquinas, who lived from 1225 to 1274. 1274. They were the foundation. Many others included also people like Martin Luther who lived 1483 to 1546. John Calvin who lived 1509 to 1564. And of course, the Westminster Confession of Faith which was written or published in 1647. And in recent history, we see classic Christian theism by theologians like Herman Bavink, Louis Berkhoff, John Webster, R.C. Sproul, Paul Helm, James Dozo, Dozo, and many others, and I am indebted to all those just mentioned. Um, the organization of these lessons is mine, but the words really come from all of the above. There's no original words in any of my lessons, so. Um, Let's talk about number three here. All theology starts with a question. Theologians only start theologizing when a dispute arises in the life of the church as to what is to be believed. So in regard to the subject of this lesson, the question is how can the biblical teaching that God is one, and we've got a few verses there to reference that, yet three divine persons be understood? or more more specifically put, um, how can the one God be eternally self-differentiated as Father, Son, and Spirit without falling into the errors of modalism, tritheism, or subordinationism? And we're going to talk about a lot of heresies toward the end of this, but all theology starts with a question. And so we want to talk about that today. And my goal, really, is to help you develop a grammar a grammar regarding the trinity truths we must believe rather than a logic that solves the mystery okay Uh, it's not a puzzle we're called to solve and you're going to be very disappointed when you leave here today because i'm not going to give you the key i'm just going to give you the grammar to teach it okay okay um the um Theologian Francis Turretin who lived from 1623 to 1687, he was a Calvinist, another classic Christian theist, says um, the Trinity is a topic which neither reason can comprehend nor example prove, but which the authority of divine revelation proposes to be received by faith. That's your walk away from this, okay? We too are acknowledge it by faith, even if, honestly, we don't have the ability to comprehend it all. So the great challenge facing us with this doctrine is to see that the unity of the divine essence does not cancel out the trinity of the persons, or conversely, that the trinity of persons does not abolish the unity of the divine essence. So let's start with the oneness of God, the unity. And, um, and let me start this just by saying that God is self-divine. He didn't receive deity from outside of himself, and that's the doctrine of aseity, from the, which means from himself, ase, God is ase, from himself. And we looked at that in lesson two. And this is number four in your handout. So before our divine God ever created the universe, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had perfect communion with one another as the one undivided Godhead with one divine nature. One divine nature. So the Father's assay, Jesus' assay, and the Holy Spirit assay. And yet there are not three assays, but one assay. And the insistence of the aseity of the Son is the foundation of the whole Christian faith and the early, earliest creeds. That's one of the questions people were trying to answer. Who's the son? And this is number five on your handout. Christians are monotheists. We believe there's only one God. That's what monotheist means. So the question is, is in what respect is God one? And the answer is in respect of his nature and being. One nature, one being. Uh, One essence, one divinity one power, one will. And you really need to drive that into your heads, one will, not three wills, okay? One intellect, one consciousness, one energy, one authority, one dominion, one sovereignty. Scripture reveals that there are, in that one divine essence, three eternal distinctions. And we're gonna talk a lot about that word distinction in a little while. Three eternal distinctions that are described as persons known as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all three have identical attributes that's what we've been studying the attributes that are shared by all three uh, and therefore they are one Okay, not merely one in substance or essence but also one in purpose and will and they're not three wills in the Godhead what, we, what would we call that? Tritheism, very good you've been paying attention So God is numerically one, one being. And when you read the words essence, or when I say the words essence, think godness, godness. All three persons of the Trinity share the same godness. One is not more God than the other. None is more essentially divine than the rest. So in Trinitarian grammar, the terms substance, being, um, nature, unity, essence, they're all um, theological synonyms in regards to God's oneness. This is number six on your handout. Each person of the Godhead is fully God, but God is one God, says the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4, which says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit each occupy the same divine space as it were and when i say as a word you know i'm speaking metaphorically right okay and the bible's full of metaphors i was telling terry this morning that if i was ever in charge of a bible translation i would call it the as it were bible so every time a metaphor is used people would say oh i'm not to take that literally god's just trying to communicate with me so each of the persons shares the same eternal being. The Father dwells in the Son and the Son dwells in the Father. Father and Son dwell on the Spirit who in turn indwell the Father and Son. The unity of God is the three persons in their mutual interpenetration which we often refer to as perichoresis. It's a Greek word. Peri means around and choresis means dance. So some people don't like that that it means the you know the trinity's dancing around each other but in, In other words, we cannot see God without seeing all three persons at the same time. As Augustine put it, each are in each and all in each and each in all and all are one. So this doctrine of unity talks about how the three persons can never be separated and that there is a sense that is infinite, invisible, pure spirit They simultaneously interpenetrate each other. And this is what scripture is referring to when it speaks of them being being in each other. It's a recurring theme from the lips of Jesus all the time that the Father dwells in the Son. He says in John 14, 10 to 11, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Okay, that's that perichoresis. And by using the term perichoresis, I don't mean it in the way some might use it by comparing it to things that socially bind humans together, things such as interrelatedness, love, empathy, mutual accord, mutual giving, and so on. This is a unity which proposes that they are one in essence, one nature, one being. That there's one being, not three, And each person of the Trinity is in full possession of the divine essence so the essence of God is not divided by the persons of the Trinity that would be what partialism (laughs) we'll talk a little bit more about that later Um, and also and one of the things that we talked about in previous lessons is the essence of God is not divided nor can it be divided by the incarnation or, or the crucifixion of the Son. The Trinity's always together. There's always perichoresis. They're always one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there was no vacancy in the Trinity when Jesus assumed a human nature. This is number seven on your handout. And the best way to explain how threeness remains one is the attribute of simplicity, which was in our lesson three. And simplicity says that God is not composite he's not divided he's not divisible into separate components God is not dissolvable into pieces the doctrine of divine simplicity protects the integrity and the unity of God's essence and prevents us from calling personality or personhood a divine attribute okay? personality is not an a- personhood is not a divine attribute uh, and, and that prevents us from collapsing into tritheism which I think is pretty common today and I'll talk a little more about that too we must hold to the unity of the divine essence as well as the distinction of persons God is one but he is to be worshipped is three any questions on the divine unity does that make sense to everybody These are distinctions in the divine nature and the divine nature is the attributes that all share. So there are distinctions in personhood and we're going we're to talk about that. If there's no questions, let's talk about Trinity. Now Christianity stands or falls with the doctrine of the Trinity and the Trinity has emerged as the touchstone of non-negotiable truth of Christian orthodoxy. What does orthodoxy mean? in straight doctrine. So my motivation for teaching this lesson really is due to the, a surprising amount of Trinity drift that appears in Christian books and on the internet and even from many prominent Reformed theologians. And it's pretty massive, okay? And I think we really need to come back to uh, our our doctrinal creed, the Westminster Confession, and... That's what this lesson's about. So let's start with Trinitarian analogies. The first rule of Trinitarian analogies is, please don't make Trinitarian analogies, especially with kids. Okay, teach them the grammar of the Trinity. Um, And the second rule of Trinitarian analogies is refer to the first rule. If you think that perhaps a clover leaf, three petals in one leaf, or H2O, which can be water, ice, and gas, or a family man who is one man who's a father, son, and brother are exceptions, I would encourage you to go back and read the first two rules, okay? And in the meantime, please go watch St. Patrick's Bad Analogies on YouTube. It's hilarious and it's very instructional. And this is the most important thing I'm going to say this morning. The doctrine of the Trinity actually arose in order to affirm certain things about the divinity of Christ. To answer the question, who is Jesus? And it arose against a background assumption that God is one. The doctrine of the Trinity is revealed to us in scripture in the incarnation of God the Son, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And here's number nine on your handout. Here's a simple model of the Trinity. We have one what, one essence, one nature, and three who's. One what, three who's. So classically, the Trinity was defined in these terms. God is one in essence, being, and three in person. And if you want the R.C. Sproul version, I watched him on YouTube yesterday. He says, I was talking to this man, and he accused us Christians, us Trinitarian Christians, of being contradictory. Because how can one equals three? And R.C. Sproul says, I was really surprised that this man said this because he has a Ph.D. in philosophy. And he just broke the first rule of non-contradiction. He says, the the rule of non-contradiction says that A can never equal not A. A cannot equal not A. But he says that's not what we have here. We have A equals B. Not A equals not A. The Trinity is not contradictory. We have one God, A, and three persons, B. B. OK, so there's a, a difference between divisions and distinctions in the Godhead. More on that later. But we want to get away from the idea that there are divisions. <coughs> the Father, Son and Holy Spirit are not divisions or composite parts in the Godhead. They don't, don't combine to add up to God. That's partialism. God is not like a three piece pizza, you know, where, you know, we have God, and then there's three pieces, okay? They're, the three persons are distinctions, not divisions in the one God, each one being fully God. And this is number 10 on your handout. We need to understand that the acts of the Trinitarian persons and their being, their internal inner relations, must be sharply differentiated from their doing, their common outward actions toward creation. And we talked about this in lesson three, but I thought it was, good to be in this lesson so the first way to look at it is, is in being in being the ontological and you might also see that referred to as the imminent Trinity in literature that refers to the one God as he is in himself beyond and above all created time the Trinity is the inner persons exist with, within their internal relations to each other their inner life their inner life, also known as opera ad intra, a Latin phrase which means the inner acts of God. Now, God in being must be differentiated from God in doing. That's also known as the economic trinity, which refers to the activity of each person in the external outworking of God's plan in regard to creation. That's also known as opera ad extra, a Latin phrase which means the external the external acts of God, those activities and effects by which the Trinity is manifested outwardly in regard to creation, redemption, and consummation. The economic Trinity is God revealed under conditions of space and time, sin and incarnation when Jesus took flesh. Why are they differentiated? Because there is a complete equality with in the ontological Trinity, and yet there's clearly an ordering within the economic Trinity with the incarnate Son taking the position of submission to the Father. We need to keep those distinctions in our head. So many today speak of Trinitarian unity incorrectly uh, in the economy of salvation as if it's nothing more than a, a cooperation between different agents or even a division of labor um, segregating the persons from one another. Some even say, incorrectly, that the persons can act solo, as if the Father can work independently of the Son and the Spirit. And this is number 11 on your handout. But just as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are insepar- inseparable in their unity, so they work inseparably, in harmony as well. So as God is as in being, one and three so god acts so god acts his doing as one and three and this is known as the doctrine of inseparable operations which teaches that because of the three persons of the trinity are one god each person of the trinity they're all operative in all of god's external works opera ad extra from creation to redemption to consummation in in other words The external works of God are undivided. So we must remember that all of God's acts are triune acts, even the ones we typically associate with one of the persons. For example, everyone who has saving faith has been drawn by the Father, moved by the Spirit to confess that Jesus is Lord. There's distinction there, but it's an undivided action, okay? Doctrine of inseparable actions, Um, this is number 12 on your handout the three act in an indivisible but not an indistinct manner Okay, there's distinction in that action but it's not indivisible and so while their works cannot be divided they can be distinguished because Father, Son and Holy Spirit are one God every divine act is the undivided work of the three yet if this is the case Why does scripture frequently attribute certain actions? for example, creation to one divine person, the Father, without mentioning the others. And the doctrine of appropriation answers this question by suggesting that actions performed by all three persons may be rightly attributed or appropriated to one divine person in order to reveal that person more fully. So just for example, when Philip asks Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us in John 14, 8, Jesus responds in John 14, 10. He says, the Father who dwells in me does his works. And throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus describes his own works as being the selfsame works of the Father. He does that in John 5, 17 and 19, John 10. 25 to 26 and 29 to 30. John 14, 10. In addition to that, Christ is ascribed to the very act of creation, which people more commonly attribute to the Father. Um, One of the interesting things I found out in the course of this study is the resurrection is actually attributed individually to each unique person of the Trinity. So if you read it in one part, you would say, oh, the Holy Spirit's responsible for it. If you read another one, you say, oh, Jesus is responsible for the resurrection. And another, this is the doctrine of appropriation. It's just, it's just how scripture works, okay? So the incarnation is of the Son. That's attributed. It's appropriated to the Son. But it is by the Trinity, inseparable operation. This is number 13 on your handout, by the way. That is, Father, Son, and Spirit brought about the incarnation of the Son. The three persons of the Trinity affect this work of incarnation, but only one person truly puts on the flesh. In the incarnation of the Son alone, the Son is not alone. He's not alone. But in modern churches, there's a, a growing view contradicting classical Christian theism And what it promotes actually is functional tritheism. And it's really generated by a social understanding of the Trinity, you know, making the doctrine of inseparable actions difficult to teach. And by functional tritheism, I mean the belief that the different persons of the Trinity do their own thing, each having their own unique will, each being responsible for certain effects. This incorrectly says that the Father alone is often thought to create while only the Son redeems and only the Spirit sanctifies or perfects. So if Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share one substance, then no equality may exist among them. Although this uh, affirmation eliminates all ontological subordination, it still leaves an important question unanswered. If the divine persons possess one nature, in what sense and on what basis are they distinct? Everybody everybody good so far? Okay. So now we're gonna talk about persons, persons in the Trinity. And first a simple definition. By the term person, we mean a distinct self-aware personality. And I had to look hard to find that word self-aware. Uh, what even some th- reform theologians like to use self-conscious, but we don't want to use that word because that that starts floating into tritheism. If you have a unique consciousness in each person, that really is tri. S- so they're self-aware, distinct personalities, and this is number fourteen on your handout. The early church wrestled with the appropriate language and person, which is what they finally decided on, aptly speaks to the personality of the three members of the Trinity and also their relationship with each other. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit co inherit as one essence, and yet there are distinctions, not divisions, distinctions. Okay, just really remember that word. One isn't the other, But they're equal in rank, equal in power, equal in glory, equal in majesty, because they are one. This is number 15 on your handout. R.C. Sproul says, the term person does not mean a distinction in essence, but a different subsistence in the Godhead. The word person is equivalent to the term subsistence. In this word, subsistence, we have the prefix sub- with the root word sisto. So subsistence really means to stand under, to stand under. Each person subsists or exists under the pure essence of deity, the one nature, the the one being. Uh, And subsistence is a difference within the scope of being, not a separate being or essence. All persons in the Godhead have all the attributes of deity. So the three divine persons are one God, equal in all things, and distinct only in relation to each other. Personal properties are the sole means of grasping what it is that makes them distinct. And if you want, you can go check that out in the Westminster Larder Catechism, uh, questions nine and 10. It talks about personal properties. As one God, the three persons are not distinguished by essential properties, characteristics that are related to the essence or to the attributes that we've talked about but by their personal properties namely that the father exists of himself the son is begotten eternally from the father and the Holy Spirit proceeds eternally from the father and son in this sense there's an order in the trinity and I found a little schematic which you can look at to kind of see what these personal distinctions are but you really gotta look close at the arrows, okay? So if you look at the father and see the second green line, what is his relation, what is his personal distinction from the son? Paternity, he's the father. And then when you look here, at the, what is the son's relation, personal distinction from the father? It's filiation, and filiation just means um, Being the child of a particular father. That's all filiation means. That's Jesus' personal distinction. Okay? The father's is is paternity. What is the father's relationship? His personal distinction from the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. Spiration. What is the spirit's relationship to the father? Procession. So and I know this may disappoint you. I was looking for something a little more to help me with what makes them distinct. But classical Christian theism says that's it, other than their names, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? The Father is the first person because he's the fountain of divinity, and the second person because the deity is communicated to him from the Father. That's why he's the Son. And the Spirit is the third person because the deity is communicated to him from the father and the son none of this means that son or spirit became God generation and procession are from eternity um, and this is that's a huge as it were because we really can't comprehend what it means that generation and procession are from eternity okay uh, they didn't become God um, this is number 16 on your handout. The term person ultimately means that this one is not that one. Hence the term person signifies real distinction. So the easiest way to distinguish the persons is the Trinity is how they eternally relate to each other. Just like we showed on that schematic. By the father's paternity, the son's generation or filiation, and the spirit's procession or being sent. They can also be distinguished by their names, but they exist from eternity in each other, not separate and alongside each other. Each of the three persons is distinct, all the while being identical and equal to the one God. There is distinction, there is difference, and there is identity. But you wouldn't say Jesus is part of God. We say Jesus is God this is number 17 on your handout and so roles roles r-o-l-e-s is not the best way to speak of the eternal distinctions between the persons of the trinity and there's a good reason why it can too easily undermine important doctrines like the simplicity of god the unity of the divine will or the inseparable operations of the trinity so you can speak of roles but man, that is just the perfect way to get people off into heresy. Okay, so that's why it's not the best way. And this is number 18 in your handout. "Person" in this doctrine does not mean um, persons in everyday American English. Our culture is so individualistic that to us, "person" automatically connotes separate center of consciousness and will. That's why self-awareness is better than three centers of consciousness. So the classical position sees the divine persons as active subjects of the same nature. Consciousness, will, and emotion are all proper to the nature, not to a person. The father does not think one thing while the son thinks another. The son does not will one thing and the spirit another. There is no individual self-consciousness. Everything is collective because the persons are the same being. Being, B-E-I-N-G. They share one mind and will, yet each person is self-aware. The Father knows he's the Father, and he knows the other two persons, and he knows of the other two persons as distinct, yet one with him. So once we understand that the persons of the Trinity are not individuals, this is number 19 on your handout. Once we understand that they're not individuals with separate centers of consciousness and will as human persons are, we realize that the mystery of the Trinity is beyond human comprehension. But we believe it without knowing how it can be. And those who try to go beyond that typically will stray into heresy any questions is, is your mind hurting mine hurts it's not a contradiction but so I'm not giving you a, a key to solve a puzzle here I'm just giving you Trinitarian grammar so now let's move to eternal generation of the Sun and what I've tried to do here in this lesson is to um, briefly teach on all the important elements in describing the Trinity from a classical classical Christian theism perspective. And the eternal generation of the son is one of them. This is number 20 on your handout. The church has held that the father begat, begat the son in eternity. This is expressed in the Constantinople Nicene Creed of 381 AD and is repeated in later confessions such as the Westminster Confession of Faith in uh, section 2.3. And by the way, this, what I'm teaching here is what we believe as Presbyterians. I don't want you to think that this is some novel doctrine. There is no text that actually says the Son is eternally generated or begotten, but nevertheless, there is much in Scripture that suggests this idea and nothing that excludes it. The Father eternally and incomprehensibly communicates the divine essence to the Son, without division or change, so that the son shares an equality of nature with the Father, and yet it's also distinct and that 's why doctrines like the eternal submission of the Son are crap because the essence of Jesus is the same as the essence of the Father. it was communic that 's what begetting means, okay so we ask the question, who is Jesus? And the Nicene Creed, and this is why creeds, does anybody know what the word, where the word creed comes from? You should know this. Huh? Yay! It's the Latin, which means I believe. So the Nicene Creed says we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, That is, of the essence of the Father. God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Begotten, not made, okay? Being of one substance with the Father. Man, that's enough right there just to turn you away from a million heresies. And this is number 21 on your handout. The son's generation is beyond physical. Eternal generation is not a movement from non-being into existence but rather the consequence of an unchanging activity in the divine essence. There is no generation of a new essence. The father's just communicating the essence of deity to the son. Hence, the son's deity being communicated from the father is not derived from another e- essence, but is identical, identical to the father's essence. And therefore, the son is a se in nature. He is from himself, by the way that's John 5:26 says for as the father has life in himself so he has granted the son to also have life in himself so when you understand eternal generation it helps make sense of that verse so augustine asks did the son receive life how did the son receive life in himself and augustine's answer is both and simple the father begat the son so this doctrine teaches that the father eternally communicates the divine essence to the son without division or change so that the son shares an equality of nature sharing all the attributes of deity yet he's eternally distinct from the father eternal generation distinguishes the son from the father but it does not make the son something less than the father everybody good with that any questions yes John do we need a microphone back there Uh, I don't know John I'm gonna have to meditate on that one (laughs) I'm not sure how it relates to this lesson Okay, for everybody out in uh, internet land, Pastor Tim says the questions regarding Gnosticism, which is not involved in this lesson. Okay, if everybody's good so far, let's talk about heresies, all right? (coughs) And as we said earlier, heresies always arise to help explain the mystery. There are things we just are not capable of grasping what people do is they say, I've got to be able to explain this. And so they do. And heresy is what results. This is number 22 in your handout. When the fullness of God's revelation in scripture is not taken into account, heresy is the result. Those who emphasize the oneness of God to the neglect of what scripture teaches regarding the deity of the three persons fall into errors such as adoptionism. And adoptionism is the belief that Jesus is not eternally God but became God via adoption sometime after his birth. Or another heresy is modalism, also known as sabellianism. It's also known as oneness Pentecostalism. We have quite a few oneness Pentecostal churches in this town. And that's the belief that the members of the Trinity are not three distinct persons but three different aspects of the same person wearing masks or a shapeshifter. Or another heresy is subordinationism, the belief that the, the Son and the Holy Spirit are lesser in being and nature than the Father. And I think that eternal submission of the Son doctrine falls under this. I think it's, subordination is heretical. And the last one is Arianism. And one of the things I was really astonished to learn in my reading is Christianity almost became Arianism instead of Trinitarianism. Uh, even after the 9 seed Cre- creed was read, written, um, Athanasius went into exile, and Arius became in, into uh, a position of favoritism. Man, we are almost all Jehovah's Witnesses, okay? And that's the belief that the Father and the Holy Spirit are not persons of the Godhead, but instead later creations of God the Father. Um, This is number 23 in your handout. Those who emphasize the three to the neglect of what Scripture teaches about the oneness of God fall into forms of tritheism, the belief that the Godhead is three distinct beings, therefore three separate gods. Three separate gods where each person has a unique, unshared will, center of consciousness, and if there's any unity at all, it's the harmony of a three-man committee. Trinitarianism is... Uh, quoted by a leading Mormon apologist, he says, is three distinct beings and three distinct gods. In number 24, again, we've talked about this, I haven't really defined it that much. The major Trinitarian heresy to rise up in the 20th century, and I'm a product of it, and I suspect many of you are too, was the doctrine of the social trinity. This doctrine took the person, the term person, way too far and degenerated into an all out heresy. The vast majority of its advocates were liberal Protestants. The Social Trinity doctrine essentially states that the term person in the doctrine of the Trinity should be seen as closely resembling human personhood as possible. Social Trinitarianism promotes separate centers of consciousness filled with distinct knowledge sets Separate wills that must be harmonized by agreement and separate roles to play in a shared enterprise called the life of God. And in our age, we have shown ourselves way too willing to trade Trinitarian simplicity for tritheism. And if you're having a hard time with this lesson, it's probably because of the social Trinitarian virus. I know I had it. and I, This is one of the reasons I want to teach this. So here's to conclude what is the purpose and role and function of the trinity doctrine in our christian life okay i don't think its chief use is in evangelism or apologetics but it is the quintessential catechizing document teaching especially kids and i think it's important for leaders in the church to know and to teach this doctrine of the trinity especially when reviewing books for group study because I'm telling you, there is so much terrible stuff out there, even from Reformed people. So here's the punchline. You can know everything I've just taught and not know God in a saving way. This is number 26. John Calvin says, because God dwells in inaccessible light, Christ must become our intermediary. Hence, he, Jesus, calls himself the light of the world. And elsewhere, he calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. For no one comes to the Father except through him, because he alone knows the Father. And afterward, the believers to whom he wishes to reveal them. To know God is to know Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And that's another whole lesson. But that really is, the it's good to know the Trinity, but you need to know Jesus. Um, And I just want to say that understanding the Trinity is not a pointless theological exercise. It's an exercise in love. We're plumbing the depths of the one who loved us enough to create us and then save us. And where our explanations and definitions fail, we go back to our knees, okay? Isaac Watts, famous hymn writer, ended his Trinitarian hymn, we give immortal praise with these words. Almighty God, to thee be endless honors done, the undivided three and the mysterious one. Where reason fails with all her powers, there faith prevails and love adores. So, um, on page four, I have some proof tasks. They're not comprehensive, but I just thought they might be helpful. Any last questions? Bob. I'll I'll catch you up with that in a second. Any other questions? John? Does does that that verse, uh, um, those who have the Son have life. Those who don't have the Son do not, do not have life. Does that cut a, I, th- I feel like that cuts a, against modalism. Is that... No, proto-Gnosticism, that <laughs> John was addressing, believed that Jesus was a mere emanation from the Father, not God in himself. Thank you, Tim. I thought I had studied enough to answer every question, but you always get one. Okay, let's uh, let's close in prayer. Our Father, as we contemplate Your nature and Your being, it causes our brains to hurt. So, we thank You for giving us Jesus, who we can know, who we can contemplate, and we can know You through Him. So, Father, we Help us to know Jesus, and help us to know that we know Jesus. Give us that assurance, which can only come from your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.